0: Welcome. Uh, This is AOL 8, the anatomy of the lower limb 8. This is the anatomy of the sole of the foot. Um, Now, our previous discussions really have naturally uh, led into a discussion of this region. Understanding this has similar goals, I think, as with the palm of the hand and would include... appreciation of the anatomy of plantar sepsis, that's the practical anatomy, but also I think of plantar trauma. However, uh, changing the perspective really of an understanding of dexterity to one of plantar stability. Now, we appreciate the cutaneous innervation with the weight-bearing heels supplied by the rather large medial calcanean nerves which have come off of the tibial nerve actually well above the ankle, and I suppose that one could equate them very loosely indeed to the palmar cutaneous branches of the ulnar nerve, for example. Now we have mentioned before in our podcast on the upper limb and the hand, you can check that out, that there are great similarities and differences also between the medial plantar nerve and the median nerve or between the lateral plantar nerve and the ulnar nerve respectively. The cutaneous distribution at three and a half, one and a half split is essentially the same although in the foot there appears in many cases to be a little less dorsal digital innovation, cutaneous innovation, than in the hand. It's down more to the level of the epinicule fold than to the middle of the middle phalanx for example I remember when we started dissecting the cadaver we started our cadaver dissection I recall with the palmar aponeurosis and if you're dissecting the plantar aponeurosis I, I must say I can't, can't think of a more frustrating and perhaps more off-putting place to start there are in the foot a lot of fat locules for shock absorption, and it's a little difficult really for the novice to get down to that glistening aponeurosis. Um, it behaves as a digital split, and it attaches to the fibrous flexor tendon sheaths pretty identically with the way the aponeurosis does so in the hand. The origin of the plantaroponeurosis is from the medial and lateral calcanean tubercles, and the central septa divide the sole into compartments which are as important for sepsis of the foot as they are in the hand. You remember the creation of the thenar and hypothena and mid spaces. In the case of the foot, there's a big and a little toe compartment, as you'd expect, which are important, and there's also a middle compartment which separates the flexor digitorum brevis from the abductors, and these septi attach to the first and the fifth metatarsal bones, and again like the hand, the hallux abductor can contain usually only the first but sometimes the second lumbrical tunnel, and that becomes important for the genesis of this space or midsole space infections. So these can happen stepping on a Piece of glass or a foreign body or something. It affects the way uh, deep sepsis uh, may um, uh, particularly occur. Right. Well, this discussion here is of no little importance, of course, in the approach towards the diabetic foot, which is, of course, a, a global problem. When I worked um, as, a, as a professor of surgery in the West Indies, there were in our hospital actually two very large wards entirely devoted to these problems. Mind you, astonishingly, despite considerable effort on our part without any commitment towards a vascular reconstructive unit, that was a tragic policy uh, uh, problem. So there needed to be really an acute appreciation uh, by surgeons treating these diabetic feet of the anatomical questions about the drainage of sepsis and the compartments of the sole in order to act as a a mechanism for primary limb salvage in the absence of a peripheral vascular reconstructive unit. So it became really doubly, trebly important. For our purposes, we can think of the foot as having three osseofascial compartments and that infection that is deep-seated and chronic is exacerbated really in these patients by a combination of macrovascular and microvascular disease, as well as by an insensitive peripheral neuropathy, which leads to a rapid necrotizing infection that is actually a synergistic gangrene, which is a hallmark of the diabetic foot and which requires an aggressive resection of devitalized tissue. The sort of surgery that's performed also needs, of course, to take into account the biomechanics of the foot in great detail. So all of this anatomy that I'm talking about now actually has tremendous practical significance, uh, particularly in uh, particular environments. Just, I think, for those in our group who appreciate these podcasts for their historical or philosophical aspects, it's... Comforting, I think, to read um, Jaffe's book on the embryology and anatomy of the foot, which uh, is published uh, still by W.B. Saunders. The editor's being quoted as saying, a quote, Coupled with the unparalleled differentiation of the cerebral cortex and the unique configuration of our vocal tract, the structures of the feet complete the anatomic triad that sets modern humans apart. From all other mammals. I'm quoting there uh, from a fellow surgeon um, and colleague, Dale Maharaj, from Port of Spain, Trinidad, for the origins of that quote from an article that he wrote, but it's it's still a great uh, quote. Okay, so the foot isn't a slab, it's important in weight bearing, in shock absorption, and locomotion. And in the way we've described it then, there is a medial compartment, and I'll preempt my discussion as we've not yet considered either the individual muscles or the factors involved in arch stability or the interosseous ligaments. So it'll be necessary to go through this podcast, perhaps re-listen to the start here with the knowledge and understanding that you've acquired by the end of the podcast in order to explain those other elements, the the stability, stabilising factors of the foot and their musculature. However, the medial compartment, to get on with it, contains the abductor hallucis, and it's bounded laterally by the intermuscular septum, of which I've already spoken, which joins the first metatarsal to the medial calcaneus. And there's then a central compartment, which can be effectively subdivided into a superficial component, enclosing the flexor digitorum brevis, the quadratus plantae, which we've briefly met. The flexor digitorum longus and their offspring lumbricals are part of this as well. And then there's a middle component which comprises the flexor hallucis longus, the flexor hallucis brevis and the adductor hallucis. And then a deep component which, as we shall see later, is the same as the fourth sole layer, housing the interossei 3 plantar and four-dorsal, just as in the hand. As we'll also see later, this central component, despite its subdivision, contains the lateral plantar vessels, as they run typically between the flexor digitorum brevis and this quadratus plantae muscle, also called or so-called flexor accessorius. That last lateral compartment, of course, contains the intrinsics of the fifth toe, which is the abductor digiti minimi, or in some older books it's sometimes called the abductor digiti quinti, the fifth muscle, the flexor digiti minimi brevis, and the opponens digiti minimi. Now, I'd remind here that this is also a point of difference between the lateral plantar nerve and the ulnar nerve in the hand. Both nerves, as we know, divide into superficial um, and deep branches, but in the hand, the easiest way to remember it is that the superficial branch of the ulnar nerve doesn't really supply muscle. Well, it actually does. It supplies the superficial subcutaneous muscle when present, that so-called palmaris brevis, and you can check that out on your own hand by abducting the little finger and just seeing if the skin of the hypothenar eminence dimples. In the case of the foot, the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve is a motor supplier, and very frequently it innervates the abductor digiti minimi, the flexor digiti minimi brevis, and usually the interossei of the fourth metatarsal space, in other words, the third planter and the fourth dorsal interosseus. So that's one important point of difference. So why is this important? Well, it's a feature, obviously, of local injury and the muscles and balance that is affected by stepping, for example onto a piece of glass, the difference between the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve, the superficial branch of the ulnar nerve, which really doesn't matter that much. One way of further appreciating these individual foot compartments is, of course, to look at a transverse cross-section of a foot in your anatomy labs. And these specimens are actually quite uncommonly assessed, but they're very useful to examine In the way I've described the danger of the diabetic foot, one can think of these individual osteofascial compartments, just as one might examine other compartment syndromes. By the way, for those who are interested in integrating their anatomy into the clinic, this is a classic example. Not only, as I've said, is there the impact of vascular disease and neuropathy, but we know also that changes in the diabetic sorbitol pathway accumulates hydrophilic compounds that then worsens the edema the edematous compression within these compartments gets worse and that's associated with an actual increase in the affinity of glycosylated hemoglobin for oxygen which makes it less available locally to tissues and which can be then coupled with a kind of microthrombotic occlusion from an increase in interstitial pressure. So all of these factors, even though we're talking about anatomy, it's relevant in the diabetic foot to know a little bit about changes in the sorbitol glycosylation pathway, the local effects of tissue edema on microvasculature, and a change even in the affinity of glycosylated haemoglobin for delivery or release of oxygen. So all of these effects compound to create a diabetic foot and an anaerobic environment. Now, I appreciate that the layers of the soul are a little artificial, however, they offer some organisation that we can understand and an approach towards dissection during trauma or sepsis. Um, Most anatomy books like Last and Gray, for example, describe four discrete layers, whereas Cunningham's book describes six just give you an aside for those interested, uh, because I can't help it really, that um, Daniel John Cunningham was a very interesting fellow, not only for his seminal anatomical work, but also because of his rather famous sons. If you look at his book, it's not as detailed as that by Ray Last, but it often adds very interesting insights, not least the biomechanics of the foot but is more practical in its description of dissection than last is. And it provides the origin and insertion points visually of the bones in a way that last and grants and netters does not. So I think these are useful things to look at if you can get a copy of Cunningham's series. It's a, it's a three-volume series. Cunningham was actually professor of anatomy in Dublin. He was born in... 1850 and died in 1909. I won't go into this in great detail but it's just very interesting. One of his sons was Andrew Cunningham who was the admiral of the British, British fleet. Actually he was Viscount Cunningham of uh, Hindhope and he ultimately took Winston Churchill's old job uh, as the first sea lord of the admiralty. Cunningham's second son was General Sir Alan Cunningham who was Britain's last High Commissioner to Palestine. He was actually charged with stopping the Israeli partisan army called the Haganah before Israel became really an independent state. So um, these guys were really quite interesting. Anyway, back to anatomy. Let's get back to the soul. I prefer, I must say, the easier definition, which is the standard four discrete layers for the purposes of of organisation and memory, and for comparison with the upper limb, with a hand. In the first layer, three rather short muscles lie edge to edge. The central one is the flexor digitorum brevis, which in the arm, of course, has its counterpart, the flexor digitorum superficialis, which we've already discussed in great detail. This arises from the medial tubercle of the calcaneus, and that's the flexor digitorum brevis, and... Um, It appears really as the first sort of central fleshy little muscle that you see once you lift up the plantar aponeurosis. It of course creates the four digital tendons which split into a chiasma which is identical with the way the flexor digitorum superficialis does it in the upper limb. But the split is around the longest tendons of the sole, and the insertion is as in the hand to the level of the middle phalanx after having done that chiasmatic twist. This muscle, the flexor digitorum brevis, is innervated by the medial plantar nerve. On the medial side, of course, we've got abductor hallucis, which is what you'd expect. So in the hand, we remember we have in the here and the thenar eminence the abductor pollicis brevis, we need a brevis because we've also got an abductor pollicis longus. We don't have that in the foot, but this is the sort of uh, abductor pollicis brevis equivalent, the abductor hallucis, And it too arises from the medial calcaneus. It's inserted into the medial part of the proximal phalanx of the great toe, also innervated by the medial plant nerve. And the origin is actually just in front of that of the flexor digitorum brevis on the medial side of the calcaneus. If we remember too the abductor pollicis brevis has an origin from the flexor retinaculum in the hand, so too does the abductor hallucis in the foot arise a little bit from that flexor retinaculum. It's a little complicated here since part of the medial aspect of the flexor hallucis brevis fuses with the medial expansion of the extensor hallucis longus by merging into a bit of the tendon of the abductor hallucis. So these things can actually be a bit fused together. That's a difference also in the foot. The insertion is mostly, however, into the plantar surface of the proximal phalanx, which kind of diminishes its efficiency, if there were actually much, as a kind of discrete abductor of the great toe, Even though we've got an abductor of the great toe, its job isn't particularly efficient. And by the way, note here, too, the similarity in the hand, whereas there's no extensor expansion for the thumb, the tendon of the extensor pollicis longus in the hand is stabilised on its dorsum by the receipt of expansions from the abductor pollicis brevis as well as a bit of the adductor pollicis. My point here is that the sole musculature, a bit like the palm musculature, crosses over a little bit into a bit of extensor support, and that's a stability issue, but it also exists in the hand. And they clearly stabilises where there are no extensor expansions that are typical in that first digit, whether it be the thumb or the great toe. Cunningham, in his first layer, of course, includes these three muscles, but also includes the plantar digital vessels and nerves. We'll come into that a little bit later. The third lateral muscle is, of course, the abductor digiti minimi, or as I said before, the Latin for fifth, the abductor digiti quinti. But what's different about this is its breadth. It originates somewhat unexpectedly from the medial and lateral calcaneal tubicles, so that's a bit unusual. And on the medial side, it's deep then to the flexor digitorum brevis, so that here it kind of runs across the top of the calcaneus as a rather broad strip of origin. And as expected, it inserts into the lateral side of the proximal fifth phalanx, sometimes into a bit of the tubicle of the fifth metatarsal as well. So the thing to remember here... Is that the origin of the abductor digiti minimi is much broader from the medial and lateral calcanean tubercles. Quite a broad muscular structure. You wouldn't expect it that much, but maybe that's got to do with the lateral stability of the foot. Otherwise, it behaves a bit like the abductor digiti minimi of the hand. It is, of course, innervated by the lateral plantar nerve, and as I said before, by its superficial branch. So we're led naturally then into the second layer, Cunningham's second layer. He actually calls the medial and lateral plantar nerves and vessels, with the third layer being muscular. We don't do that. The other textbooks include all of this in the second layer. And these are obviously the long flex attendants. If you're reading Cunningham, he becomes a bit confusing here because he includes the tibialis posterior, which is really part of the fourth layer. So I would try and stick with our four-layer system. So in this second layer are the long flexor tendons, the flexor digitorum longus, the flexor accessorius, or as I've called it before, the quadratus plantae, a bit of a unique muscle, and the spin-off muscles, the lumbricals, and of course the big flexor of the great toe, the flexor hallucis longus, so just think of it as the long flexors and their spin-offs and that rather unique foot muscle, which we'll mention, the quadratus plantae. Much easier this way, okay? In amongst the tendons of the long flexors is, of course, flexor hallucis longus, and that's the one I've already mentioned because it's skewed out of its path by having to travel underneath around the sustentaculum tali. It leaves a big groove there if you look at an articulated foot or if you look at a um, at uh, uh, a talus, you can see all of this as it runs. That's the flexor hallucis longus into the middle of the sole. It's actually crossed by the flexor digitorum longus, and in so doing, the flexor hallucis longus gives a kind of medial support to the two tendons of the flexor digitorum longus as it's dividing. Uh, providing this additional medial support. Now, that's unique, and it highlights the kind of biomechanical significance of the flexor hallucis longus to the medial foot structure and stability. Okay, it inserts into the distal phalanx of the great toe between two sesamoids. It's identical, really, to the flexor pollicis longus there in the hand. The synovial sheath for the flexor hallucis longus runs the full length of the sole, which is, of course, important in diabetic foot sepsis. Now, the next one we've got is the flexor digitorum longus, and this enters the sole medial to the flexor hallucis longus, as we remember also the Tom, Dick and Harry mnemonic at the level of the flexor retinaculum. As I've said, it crosses just as it divides into its four tendons over the flexor hallucis longus. So they're like two bowstrings on the sole. The slips are, of course, given to the second and the third toes from the flexor hallucis longus. This is, and here's another hand-foot difference, the point where the flexor digitorum longus is supplemented by this flexor accessorius. And of course these four flexor digitorum longus tendons pass deep, as we know, to the flexor digitorum brevis, they give off their lumbricals, they go into their fibrous flexor sheaths, they insert into the distal phalanx, and the arrangement is the same Uh, with flexor digitorum brevis in the foot as the flexor digitorum superficialis and the uh, flexor digitorum profundus in the hand. Now what the heck is this flexor accessorius thing? I must say I prefer the term quadratus plantae because it's a kind of morphological reminder, but it has a large fleshy medial head and a rather tendinous lateral head, with an origin in front of the abductor digiti minimi. Between the two heads, you can see the long plantar ligament. That's visible, but I'll go into that later. I do suggest, although it's tedious, that after you appreciate the ligamentous stability of the foot, that you at some stage go through this podcast again, but equipped with the new knowledge. And it makes the earlier part, what we're talking about here, and this middle part a little bit more valuable. As I've stated, midfoot, or perhaps a little more proximally, the muscle inserts into the tendon of the flexor digitorum longus, hence the name flexor accessorius, just as that tendon, FDL, is breaking, is itself breaking up. And that's the same point where the flexor hallucis longus provides its support and also the commencement point where the lumbricals take off and the synovial sheaths of the flexor digitorum longus individual tendons to the lateral toe start. So as we recall there's a greater flexibility of the great and little toes and in some there's a continuation of this synovial sheath into the main flexor digitorum longus common synovial sheath on the lateral side and rather than being interrupted over a short midsole distance the whole thing is a continuous sheath into the flexor hallucis longus at the ankle. And that point actually can be very important because it can have individual implications for the spread of a suppurative tenosynovitis in some cases. So here we can remember these events a little bit more easily. They're all happening in about the mid-song. The flexor accessorius is innervated, of course, by the lateral plantar nerve, and it's believed that it pulls on the flexor digitorum longus tendons in such a way as to permit or assist inflection of the lateral four toes at any position, and that, for example, when the ankle is flexed and the flexor digitorum longus itself is at its shortest, this muscle acts biomechanically to assist in toe flexion and the power of that movement. If we're dissecting the foot, the muscle is deep to the flexor digitorum brevis, but superficial to the abductor hallucis and the lateral plantar artery and the lateral plantar nerve actually runs over its surface for context, with the medial plantar artery and the medial plantar nerve running a little more medially. There's actually a nice article um, on this muscle by Athabale and Geetha Swathi um, from Surgical and Radiologic Anatomy in 2012, if one wants to look that up. Uh, when I start, I think, our website later this year, these articles and summaries will be made available for subscribers to round out their knowledge. I should state that the two headed structure of this muscle is a bit unique to humans. It's a single belly in other mammals. And a human variant, when an element of this muscle runs through the tarsal tunnel, the so called flexor digitorum accessorius longus, as it's called is a potential cause of tarsal tunnel syndrome with tibial nerve compression. The few anatomical studies that have been performed suggest a rather high variability of the quadratus plantae, which might be indicative of its evolving state. If the old theories are actually correct, it's descended into the sole from the leg, and the medial and lateral heads of origin would reflect this, whereas others suggest that the different heads are discreetly morphological, with the medial head a kind of new human developmental pattern, either linked to a deeper head of the flexor digitorum brevis or the flexor hallucis longus, and therefore being a more recent phylogenetic development that might explain a greater variability of the medial head origin. There's just a bit of speculation about that. The idea of a toe flexor support of the quadratus plantae is that its bulk may represent more than this and that our plantigrade status actually makes us different from animals that are merely digiti-grade, in other words they've got flattened feet, or from other animals that rely on placement of the lateral border of the foot on the ground for their stability. I'll go a little bit more into the biomechanics a bit later, but it would make the medial aspect of our human foot a little bit more grip-like than previously thought at a point before the toe takeoff, And that might be an advantage of the quadratus plantae, not just inflection power of the distal toes particularly when the flexor digitorum longus is at its shortest acting or is not acting very well at all, such as when the ankle is plantar flexed. The variability in the slip attachments between the flexor digitorum longus and quadratus plantae might particularly reflect their common embryologic origin and this embryologic variability. So it's a little bit more complicated the FDL, we remember, provides the lumbricals and they move preaxially towards the metatarsophalangeal joints, much as they do in the hand, and they lie on the plantar surface of the deep transverse metatarsal ligaments passing into the dorsal extensor expansion. There's a difference here with the foot, although like the hand, a lumbrical that is innervated by the medial plantar nerve is typically unicipital, has one head, whereas one supplied by the lateral plantar nerve is typically bicipital, has two heads. Here over in the foot, more typically, it's the lateral plantar nerve that dominates and that tends to supply the lateral three lumbricals in a 1-3 relationship rather than, as in the hand, where the relationship is more typically 2-2. As far as we know, the lumbrical action is important in the foot in straightening those interphalangeal joints whilst the toes are flexed at the metatarsophalangeal joint. That's important because weakness of these leads to the kind of hammer toe appearance which is accentuated by an unopposed activity of the flexor digitorum brevis on the proximal interphalangeal joints. They become flexed. And here too, the issue is a little bit more complex, since the metatarsophalangeal joints of the lateral four toes become slightly extended. Paralysis here would prevent the extension of the interphalangeal joints, uh, the action of the lumbricals, and as I've just said, with the MTP joints, the metatarsophalangeal joints a little bit extended, the PIP, the proximal interphalangeal joints, then become flexed. You can't keep the toes straight. And that drags on the foot. You must remember the effects, of course, of weight bearing here. The foot is weight bearing. That changes the expected dynamic. And these effects, of course, can lead to pressure and erosive ulceration and blistering. So the other point to remember is that although the flexor digitorum longus arrangement with the flexor digitorum brevis is kind of the same in the foot as the flexor digitorum superficialis, flexor digitorum profundus. Um, one in the hand, that the FDB, the digitorum brevis, is actually quite weak relatively, and it's shortened by the presence of the calcaneus and its action on relatively short, rather immobile toes. So the homology is there anatomically, but it's, it's not actually so translatable functionally. And I am, I hope, trying to emphasise these homologies from the start, actually, this whole series Uh, which began last year of the start comparisons of the upper and lower limb segments and I think for that you can see ULL1 for the discussion if you want to refresh that because I believe it's a very good way of remembering your anatomy without having to relearn it for the upper and lower limb but also because it is I believe a a new approach or newish approach to teaching homologous functional anatomy. We then on to the third layer, and like the first layer, this consists of three short muscles which link the metatarsus. Two of them act on the big toe, one on the little toe. It's a little bit more complex than that. The first is flexor hallucis brevis, and that arises from the undersurface of the cuboid in the area. If you're looking at an articulated foot against the edge with the lateral cuneiform. So that's on the medial side of the distal part of the articulating cuboid bone. But there are supplements from all three of the cuneiforms and from, as we know, some of the extensions of that tendon, the tibialis posterior. Now what's different here is that the rather short belly of muscle, this is the flexor hallucis brevis, splits into two tendons, one on the medial side and one on the lateral side, running through the sesamoids. So there's a difference here between the abductor pollicis brevis and the flexor hallucis brevis between the upper limb and the lower limb, respectively. You might recall that I spoke about the differences in the neurology of the flexor pollicis brevis in the thenar eminence uh, when there was an ulnar attachment to the proximal phalanx through a sesamoid. In the foot, the insertion, of course, is into the base of the proximal phalanx, but it's on both sides. What's easier to understand in the foot is that the medial part of the flexor hallucis brevis inserts with the abductor hallucis, and the lateral part or tendon inserts a little with the adductor hallucis, which we haven't covered just yet. Of course the flexor hallucis brevis is innervated by the medial plantar nerve and it flexes the proximal phalanx of the great toe. The sesamoids here increase the size of the ball of the big toe and they act also as small shock absorbers which prevent compression devascularization of the tendons, as well as that of the flexor hallucis longus. We know that there's also an os osperineale, which is a little sesamoid bone, in the perineus longus tendon, just as it's curving around that bit of the cuboid. And also that the tibialis posterior enters the sole uh, at these levels, uh, and supplements the interosseous joints. The relevance for the hand to remind those people of course is that if the flexor pollicis brevis inserts into the ulnar wood side of the thumb then that may actually be innervated by the ulnar nerve. That's an unusual thing to do and it either represents an unnecessary first palmar interosseous or part of the adductor pollicis, and therefore would be innervated by the ulnar nerve. In the case of the foot, the flexor halliusis brevis has both a lateral and medial insertion point through sesamoids, so that the homology ends there. But it's relevant in the hand because sometimes the muscles of the thenar eminence are innervated by the ulnar nerve, apart from the abductor pollicis brevis, and so that can cause confusion in a median nerve injury. I'd like you to go back to that bit on the hand in the upper limb if that's unclear, uh, and that'll help um, in in that area. The next muscle is the one we've mentioned. This is in this layer, and we haven't discussed it yet, but that's the adductor halliosis, and it's very like the adductor pollicis. It has two heads, but there are some differences in the foot. They're very minor, uh, but I like to ask these sometimes in serious post-grad exams because I'm interested in foot sepsis but in this case there's a larger oblique and a small transverse head similar to the hand. The oblique head arises from the bases of the second, third and fourth metatarsals. It's a little like the adductopolysis which embraces the insertion onto the base of the second and third metacarpals of the flexor carpi radialis. But in the foot there's also an origin of from part of the long plantar ligament as it runs over the surface of the peroneus longus. The slender transverse head of the adductor halliosis has some similarities and differences too with the adductor pollicis. In um, this case, uh, this one has no bony attachment and it arises from a bit of the deep transverse metatarsal ligament and the capsules of the lateral four metatarsophalangeal joints. The transverse head of the adductor pollicis actually has a bony origin from the base of the third metacarpal, so here too is a little difference between the hand and the foot. It's one of my favourite questions also, but it reflects a deep understanding of the anatomy of the foot and hand in sepsis, as I keep banging on about. The insertion is into the lateral aspect of the base of the proximal phalanx, with the lateral tendon, the um, FHB, or the flexor hallucis brevis. Like the adductor pollicis, as I've said, where the deep branch of the ulnar nerve sinks into its substance, so too does the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve sink into the adductor hallucis, And it's an important muscle in the foot, not so much in adduction, but in the action adduction provides to the axial metatarsal to contribute to the transverse arch by pulling on the undersurface of the capsules of these metatarsophalangeal joints. The other muscle is of course the flexor digiti minimi brevis and that arises from the base of the fifth metatarsal nearby the peroneus or fibularis longus and it runs laterally to insert into the lateral side of the proximal phalangeal base a little bit medial to the insertion point of the abductor digiti minimi and this muscle the flexor digiti minimi brevis is actually as we know innervated by the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve and uh, it's just one more of the little toe strength flexors now we're led into the fourth layer here and the next layer is what we what most I think call the fourth layer, what Cunningham actually calls the sixth layer. But this layer is the most typically the one housing the interossei and the insertional points of the tibialis posterior and the peroneus or fibularis longus. Cunningham's fifth layer is actually the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve and the plantar arch, so I don't think this kind of separation is best really for our students. And I think it makes it harder to appreciate. But I'm just highlighting that you may read different things in different books, and those are why there are differences. I think ours of four layers is more practical. Now, the principles of the interossei of the foot are the same as in the hand, with pad and dab representing palmar adduction and dorsal abduction. There's a shift, of course, in the longitudinal axis of the foot, Preaxially by a digit, so that it's the second metatarsal, and given the abductors and adductors in the foot, we still need three plantar and four dorsal interossei. We have three palmar and four dorsal interossei, and I'd remind you to look at the podcast on the anatomy of the hand, and that'll remind you of the insertion into the dorsal extensor expansion behind the deep transverse metatarsal ligament just like it does with the metacarpals. And just as in the hand, the plantar interossei, as I've said, arise unicipitally from the metatarsal of their own toe, the dorsal interossei bicipitally from the two metatarsals which it spans. And if you go through it in an articulated foot, as you can with a hand to remind you how the insertion side results in either adduction or abduction towards or away from the second digit. It's really quite simple. Remember pad and dab, and that there, unless there's a variation, a three planter and four dorsal interosseum. The innovation is, of course, the lateral plantar nerve, the deep branch, which, is, as I've already said, is a difference with the hand the muscles of the fourth space being supplied by the superficial branch of that nerve, and that's of relevance in trauma. The real function of these muscles in the foot is not so much the abduction-adduction game as in the hand, but rather keeping the interphalangeal joints in plantar extension so that they don't buckle. And again, it's another function uh, of the lumbrical, straightening the interphalangeal joints. Now, it's in this plane that we have to talk about a couple of tendons. The fibularis longus we've already mentioned, but the tendon runs along the groove at the back of the cuboid. You can see that in an articulated foot, but it's tunnel around the sesamoid is held down by extensions of the long plantar ligament. Of course, we know it's metatarsal and medial cuneiform insertion, very similar to but not identical to that of the tibialis anterior on the other side. And I've discussed these before. These are therefore two powerful, um, uh, really, uh, tendons, one a plantar flexor and the other an extensor and uh, they powerful inverters of the foot as well. We also have tibialis posterior, which is stoutly inserted into the tuberosity of the navicular, but which lying above the spring ligament also sends extensions as ligamentous attachments back to the sustentaculum tali to all the three cuneiforms more as kind of interosseous ligaments, and to the base of the cuboid, the bases of the second, third, and fourth metatarsals. Everybody says that this inserts into all of the uh, all of the um, tarsus except the talus. Well, it's not accurate in that sense. These are interossei or interosseal uh, interosseous ligaments. As such, we have to address, I think, the plantar nerves and arteries. As I've said, Cunningham calling it part of a second layer, the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve is a fifth layer. We're not doing that. But this approach is far too complex. What we need to understand here is that these nerves arise deep to the flexor retinaculum from the tibial nerve. They enter the sole of the foot with the corresponding branch of the posterior tibial artery, and that's deep to the abductor hallucis. And we remember that the arterial division is a bit higher than the nervous division. You think of it alphabetically that way, above the ankle. And again, that's really important in trauma or in distal vascular exposure. In the medial and lateral borders of the sole, the artery, therefore, is more marginal than the nerve. And that's not like the wrist. It's the reverse in the wrist. And that's also really relevant for trauma. Since in a hand injury, if you're pushing your hand through a plate glass window, if there's arterial bleeding, the likelihood is that there's also a nerve injury. That's not necessarily the case in the foot. And that knowledge really has practical significance. The medial plantar nerve is also much larger because although it supplies far less muscle, its cutaneous innervation is a bit greater. And likewise, the lateral plantar artery is bigger because it forms the only plantar arch. So these are some differences that we can think of between the hand and the foot. Another difference of the hand, of course, is with its superficial palmar arch. The main contributor is the ulnar artery. The deep palmar arch, we remember, has the main radial artery contribution. This neurovascular plane runs effectively between the first and second layers, in the way I've described it, lying against the long tendons, although it's a little bit artificial. (coughs) Now, (coughs) we can go into this a little bit here. And uh, the medial plantar artery can be actually pretty variable in its size. Its branches can concord with those of the medial plantar nerve. But it's not uncommon that the small artery that accompanies the plantar digital nerves can even be very, very small or even absent. And it's effectively then replaced by a larger plantar metatarsal artery. And it ends by an anastomosis with the first plantar metatarsal artery on the medial side of the big toe. The artery is on the outside, as I've said, of the medial plantar nerve, and it appears under the muscles of the first layer. It supplies the abductor hallucis and the flexor hallucis brevis, but it also supplies basically the big toe. On the lateral plantar artery side, that too runs with the lateral plantar nerve and is the origin of that single plantar arch, providing a proper lateral digital plantar artery to the lateral side of the little toe then a plantar metatarsal artery for each metatarsal space. Each one of those metatarsal arteries sends a perforating branch through the proximal part of the space to join the dorsal metatarsal artery. And here, it can be a bit complicated by uniting with a little digital branch of the medial plantar artery, if that exists. And then it becomes a common plantar digital artery. So there's some variation there. And that then splits around the digit on the adjacent side of the toes, where we call it a proper digital artery. Got it? Now, I must say, I always had a little bit of trouble with this, but the difference is that some of the plantar digital arteries are a bit vestigial, and because they all have to accumulate around the single plantar arch. And that artery runs deep to the small muscles of the first layer here, the abductor digiti minimi, the flexor digitorum brevis, And although it runs with the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve, its main branch winds around the base of the fifth metatarsal. It runs with the deep branch of the nerve. And that plantar arch in, runs in the bases of the metatarsal, so it's very proximal. And it joins the dorsalis pedis, if you remember that, that artery, in the first metatarsal space. In fact, the small perforating branch of the arcuate artery, if you remember the dorsalis pedis, which we discussed in an earlier podcast on the extensor sign. And these ones run in the proximal part of the space to join that deep planter arch. So there's some variability in that, but that's how there's a dorsal planter perforating connection. Sometimes there are higher perforators as well in the more distal part of the metatarsal space. So You can actually have two perforators running and supplementing it from the dorsal side. And then there is, as I've said, the further supplementation from the termination of the dorsalis peters. I always found that very difficult to understand, but I think if you look at it that way, it's a bit easier uh, to understand. Now, we need to consider the nerves here a little bit. Uh, it's really a lot to take in, but we've got quite a bit left in our, uh, in our uh, uh, discussion yet. So just let's dispense with the nerves, the medial plantar nerve which supplies the two muscles under which it runs the abductor hallucis and the flexor digitorum brevis, and also the flexor hallucis brevis and the first lumbrical. It has, as we know, the digital cutaneous branches that supplies the medial three-and-a-half toes plantarwoods, and as I've said before, back to the level on the dorsum of the foot to the epinicule foam. There's often a lateral communicating branch from that medial plantar nerve with the lateral plantar nerve, and that can sometimes develop a little painful pressure neuroma there which needs to be differentiated from Freiberg's metatarsalgia. The proper plantar digital nerve to the medial side of the big toe also innervates the flexor hallucis brevis, and there might be added medial foot cutaneous branches. These can divide into three cutaneous common plantar digital nerves before, as we've said before, becoming the proper digital nerves. And note too that the medial common digital nerve is the source of the nerve supply to the first lumbrical. So all of these are, are quite specific points. To reiterate, the lateral plantar nerve passes between the flexor digitorum longus and the quadratus plantae and the abductor digiti minimi and in that space it then runs between the abductor digiti minimi and the flexor digitorum brevis and it gives that lateral cutaneous branch to the lateral little toe before dividing into the superficial and deep branches as I briefly already discussed. To return to the superficial branch, just to reiterate again, it gives off its proper plantar digital nerve and a common plantar digital nerve in the fourth metatarsal space. It's here that it has a muscle supply to the flexor digiti brevis and the muscles of that space, the third and fourth plant, well the third plantar and fourth dorsal interosseus, and often supplies the adductor digiti The next branch are the cutaneous elements of the fourth cleft. That continues then as the deep branch, and like the deep branch of the eye on the nerve, but in practice you find it's deep to the adductor hallucis, ending within it, supplying that muscle, and the lateral three lumbricals, and the medial two plantar interossei, and the medial three dorsal interossei. There's also some supply uh, from this nerve, the deep uh, lateral plantar nerve, to the distal intertarsal joints, to the tarsometatarsal joints, and the intermetatarsal regions. So in summary, we've got a first layer three muscles: flexor digitorum brevis, abductor hallucis, abductor digiti minimi or quinti. The second layer has five muscles: the flexor, well, let's put it this way, the flexor digitorum longus tendon, the flexor hallucis longus tendon, the quadratus plantae muscle, and the lumbrical muscles. Think of it that way is easier. The third layer has three muscles: the flexor hallucis brevis, the adductor hallucis, and the flexor digiti minimi brevis. And then the fourth layer has basically the two tendons: tibialis posterior and the peroneus longus, and the seven muscles: the three plantar and four dorsal interossei. So we'll have a little bit uh, of a break, and uh, I think. Uh, what I'll do is um, just finish off uh, with a little bit of a discussion on plantar stability. I suggest that you just pause it here and we're going to talk a little bit about plantar stability and the plantar ligaments. Now, it's useful to have at your hand an articulated foot. The other thing you can look at, of course, is your own foot impression uh, of a wet foot on a dry floor. We've all looked at that, but it's a biomechanical imprint, isn't it? The heel makes a wet impression, as does the lateral foot and the pads of the distal phalanges, and the area of this oblong shape shows the medial gap that we all recognise as a normal human footprint. That medial gap is of course the medial longitudinal arch of the foot. We're less aware of the lateral longitudinal arch where there's a differential lateral pressure which is obviously much flatter but still significant. Okay, I won't go into this but some may be interested in the differential footprints of animals or the forensics behind footprints to assess the weight of an individual or the controversies of footprints found near Creta, which cast doubt on an isolated African human evolution. But I'm getting a bit off topic into an area I don't know much about, perhaps the fodder for a podcast in the anatomy cupboard. Briefly, the oldest footprints discovered are the Alatoli series from uh, Tanzania, probably made by an Australopithecus walking upright. Now if we drift back to the foot, let's look at those articulated bones where the arch is maintained by bony, muscular and ligamentous elements. The bones of the medial longitudinal arch are the calcaneus, talus, navicular as well as the three cuneiforms and the three medial metatarsals. We've covered these bones in the previous podcast. The points of attachment here are the posterior tubicle of the calcaneus and the heads of the metatarsals. And likewise, the lateral longitudinal arch consists of the cuboid, the calcaneus, of course, and the lateral two metatarsals. If we look at the transverse arch, it's incomplete, and it's only when the two feet stand together that the whole arch is formed. It's a hemiarch, and it's really the basis of all of the five metatarsals, plus the cuneiforms and the cuboid. Now, the medial longitudinal arch is not really generated by the bones, although one might think of it that way, or even the ligaments. Uh, We have the plantar plantaropondurosis, of course, which stretches between the back and forward pillars, but it can only accentuate the arch without really forming it. We need to consider really rather the special intertarsal ligaments now, which have particular and important names and i must say i used to get these a little confused as a student so let's see if we can clear them up the first is the spring ligament and it's a medial structure and another another name for that could be the calcaneonavicular ligament an interosseous ligament now briefly before this although i've already mentioned this the most important joints In the foot or tarsus, so that between the calcaneus talus and navicular, we've discussed that in the previous podcast, the talocalcaneo navicular, or so-called subtalar joint, and that between the calcaneus and the cuboid. As I discussed in the last podcast, our understanding of the tarsus defines the forefoot and midfoot amputations that are possible for ambulation without a prosthesis or with a limited prosthesis, and I've gone through those if you need to go through the previous podcast. The uh, calcaneal cuboid and talonavicular components create a mid-tarsal joint, and the subtalar, of course, in some minds is just really the talocalcaneo and part of the calcaneal navicular joint, but it's separated medially from the undersurface of the sustentaculum tali. I prefer to think of the subtalar joint as a composite joint, so there are some differences in our discussion when we speak. But that aside, the spring ligament joins the sustentaculum tali to the tuberosity of the navicular, and it is potentially divisible into a three-part supramedial calcaneonavicular proper ligament which connects the anterior margin of the sustentaculum tali to the plantar surface of the calcaneus, a medio plantar, more sort of oblique ligament, and an inferior calcaneo-navicular ligament. So it's a very glorified calcaneo-navicular interosseous ligament, but it has these separate components, and each of these components attaches really to different parts of the navicular, even though they're essentially doing much the same thing. The talus directly then rests on the superior component which is supported by the tendon of the tibialis posterior and interestingly we see that this communicates with the deep fibers also of the deltoid ligament providing a bit more medial stability. The task of that main medial ligament is really to critically support the talus which sits on it if you like uh, or even sits in it and, and about it's about not only medial support, but full body weight bearing. Obviously, all the interosseous attachment that's around the tarsal ty- sinus medially and the cervical element of that sinus laterally holds the calcaneus and talus together, and that contributes to the integrity of the medial longitudinal arch. Now, of course, the muscles can contribute, and the most important, as we already know, is the flexor hallucis longus, with its longitudinal pull, and its contribution to that weaker flexor digitorum longus, particularly in the medial two toes. And that's the principal muscular element when standing for long periods of time, but also in propulsion and landing. And it's supported by the other medial muscles going to the great toe, like the abductor hallucis and the medial part of flexor digitorum brevis. And one could also imagine a small bit of stabilizing input from the medial interossei as well. So it's quite a complex medial integrity, and we know, of course, the mix of the tibialis anterior and the peroneus or fibularis longus, but these are a little bit more complex than we imagine. The tibialis anterior has that upward pull and is a contributor to the medial longitudinal arch as well. It is, however, I think incorrect to think of the stabilising effect of the peroneus longus in the same way. It's more complex than that. Its impact on foot stability is a little counterintuitive, actually. Its angulation across the sole from lateral to medial has its lowest point at the back of the cuboid. And an excessive lateral pull on the peronus longus actually serves to flatten that arch medially. And one may think of it as really inverting the foot as we've said before, an inverter, but its action is more complicated, allowing to this kind of lateral eversion of the foot because the lateral contraction is actually at a lower level, like like sub-C level, if you like, on that lateral part of the foot. So its action is more complex than that. On the lateral side, the lateral longitudinal arch, there's really no relevant (laughs) bony factor, but it's principally ligamentous here. The aponeurosis is of course important, but so is the short plantar ligament. Now I must say, I don't think of this on the lateral side of the foot as anything more than a glorified interosseous calcaneo-cuboid ligament, but that is what is called the short plantar ligament. It's just given a fancy name and it fills in the gap between the anterior calcanean tubercle, if you're looking at that, and the posterior ridge of the cuboid. Again, look at an articulated foot, and that's fairly obvious. That That's quite a gap that is crossed by the short plantar ligament. So it sits under the long plantar ligament, which I must confess I think of as more of a ligamentous structure that is recognisable. But this actually more superficially covers the plantar surface of the calcaneus Extending from both the posterior tubercles, that's the medial and lateral, that give origin to the quadratus plantae, to the calcanean anterior tubercle, with the deeper fibres attaching to the posterior ridge of the cuboid on top of the short plantar ligament, and with um, the superficial part actually bridging that tendon of the peroneus longus as it runs in that groove, attaching to the anterior ridge of the cuboid and a bit of the base also of the um, lateral three metatarsals also are kind of insertional points of this long plantar ligament. So if you're dissecting the foot, the long plantar ligament is actually covered by the flesh of the quadratus plantae. But there's a glistening bit that can be seen in that gap between the fleshy medial and the rather tenderness lateral heads of origin of that muscle. So this lateral arch is assisted by the short and long plantar ligaments in the way that we've defined them, and by the lateral pull, as I said before, of the peroneus or fibularis longus tendon, supported a bit by the lateral muscular elements, parts of the flexor digitorum longus to the lateral two toes, a bit of pull of the flexor hallucis brevis, a bit of the pull of the abductor digini minimi. So they'll also contribute to the integrity of that lateral plantar arch. Now, I should also mention the bifurcate ligament on the lateral foot, and it arises from the upper surface of the calcaneus under cover of the extensor digitorum brevis. on the extensor side. It has two divergent limbs, since we're talking about ligaments on on the foot. One runs towards a navicular attachment, so it's running right across the top of the bones there, and a lateral sort of thinner, sometimes absent component, which attaches to the cuboid. And there are a variety of other uh, interosseous ligamentous attachments. The transverse arch of the foot, which forms in the curved structure of the cuneiform wedges, again looks a little counterintuitive because if you look at the lateral cuneiform, that fits that pattern as it bunches against the cuboid. But the medial cuneiform is facing round the wrong way to really contribute as a bone to the integrity of the transverse arch. Its fat bit is more towards And so the arch, the transverse arch, it too is formed by the ligaments that bind the cuneiforms and the bases of the metatarsals, as well as the contractile effect, as I've said, of the fibularis longus, which tends to draw the medial and lateral foot arches towards one another, so it accentuates the transverse arch. So it's a much more complex kind of thing in its biomechanics than we would think, and this stability holding the metatarsals together has also the impact of the deep transverse metatarsal ligaments, the transverse elements of the plantar aponeurosis which are designed to stop, as the f- foot becomes plantigrade, the toes from splaying apart. We can also, I think, more biomechanically view the foot knowing this. The mechanisms of arch support are wedge-shaped, with the idea perhaps of a central keystone like a bridge, That's more complex than than that. The medial keystone could be considered like an architectural approach to the bridge. That would be the talus. The lateral keystone would, in that view, be the cuboid. There are then the so-called staples of the bridge, and these would be the inferior edges of the stones as they would be tied together. These would be the plantar ligaments, bits of the tibialis posterior, which are maintained, as I've said, by the long and short plantar ligaments, as well as the short muscles of the foot, largely the dorsal interossei and the adductor hallucis. So if we're keeping this architectural, structural, bridge-building analogy together, there's a tie-beam effect as well, which connects the pillars, and that prevents the foot from sagging. And that's contributed, as we know, by, to by the plantar but also by the bulk of the flexor digitorum brevis, by a bit of the abductor hallucis, the flexor hallucis longus, the flexor digitorum longus, the flexor hallucis brevis. Laterally, it includes also a bit of the lateral part of the plantar neurosis, the abductor digiti minimi, the flexor digiti minimi brevis, the lateral bit of the flexor digitorum longus which is, in part, as we know, maintained by the peroneus longus. So all of those small muscles of the foot contributed this cone, kind of tie-beam effect, which stops the foot sagging in the middle. And finally, we can think of the whole structure a bit like a suspension bridge, an element sitting above the arch, and that would include the external bit of the tibialis anterior, the input of the anterior and posterior ankle joint ligaments, bits of the peronei on the outer aspect of the foot, the peroneus longus and brevis. So that just sort of makes it a little bit more complex but a little bit more interesting about the way we think of the biomechanics of the foot. I wanted to complete this podcast just commenting a little, as we've done before, about inversion and eversion mechanics of the foot. And I've mentioned these combination movements before, although I accept but they're not well defined in text they're essential in pivoting and shifting weight emphasis particularly when the ground base underfoot is uneven and if we think of inversion where the medial border of the foot is raised with some but only loose comparison in the upper limb to supination then that's the job of the tibialis anterior the tibialis posterior it's assisted by the extensor hallucis longus and the flexor hallucis longus and the one tibialis anterior dorsiflexes, the other tibialis posterior plantiflexes. In eversion, which is kind of raising the lateral foot border, that's the task of the peronei, and that includes the peroneus longus, the peroneus brevis, the peroneus tertius, in short anything attached to the lateral foot, although that's somewhat simplistic as we know because of the complexity of action of the peroneus longus. The tertius is a distinct dorsiflexor, as we know, with the others being really plantar flexors because they're tendons that pass behind the lateral malleolus and its axis of movement. And these inversion-eversion muscles are all attached to the forefoot in the sense that they're all anterior in their insertions to the mid-tarsal joint. And so these effects of inversion and eversion are transmitted to these origins after action of the other musculature. And there's very little actual movement as such at the midtarsal joint itself, with the fuller range of inversion and eversion occurring actually beneath the talus. The calcaneus and cuboid are themselves also firmly held in place by the long and short plantar ligaments in the way I've described them, and also by the spring ligament medially, so that eversion here is even smaller. And the balance of these muscles. Produces the required position of the foot, even though the line of pull through the bones runs obliquely from the lateral tubercle of the calcaneus through the tail and neck and into the medial tarsal sinus. And that allows the muscles actually to have their most efficient pull at right angles to this axis. The same principle that I mentioned with the line of pull and its purity in the extraocular muscles. If you go back last year or maybe even the year before, which was the start of the head and neck to look at the line of pull of the extraocular muscles. Again, these are most efficient in certain grades, the obliques, particularly when the eye is moved medially, the recti, when the eye is moved laterally or extorted. Again, if you want to understand that, go back to the head and neck extraocular muscles. But it's a similar principle here because of the change of line of pull because of the presence of the sustentaculum tali and the calcaneus. These muscles like the soleus are interrupted and therefore the line of pull of the ongoing small muscles and the long flexors is therefore different and depends on whether the foot is somewhat everted or inverted. Go back and listen to that podcast on the anatomy of the orbit if you find that approach useful. In practice with the foot there are four lines of pull just as the same could be said of the extraocular muscles which have an efficiency against an orbital axis that depends on their starting position. My point here is that the principle is the same. The lines of pull are the tibialis anterior inverting the tarsal joints and dorsiflexing the ankle. The peroneus tertius inverts the tarsal joints and dorsiflexes the ankle. The tibialis posterior inverts the tarsal joints and plantar of the ankle. And the peroneus longus and peroneus brevis invert the tarsal joints and plantar of the ankle. And these movements become more and more pure in certain circumstances, but they're always like the um, extraocular movements, balanced. The reason why some of this knowledge is important, I think, is in the differences in propulsion dynamics between normal people and those patients, for example, have had a stroke. As they become elderly, there's some also biomechanical data on this topic, and the walk includes, as we know, the heel strike, the toe-off, the swing with the weight taken like that bathroom shower footprint on the heel, and laterally, and as the anterior and medial pillar. The toe flexors, which are long and short, increases the force of that takeoff. but the real power is in the flexor hallucis longus, as I've said, And these, along with the short muscles, flex the toes, heighten the arch with the lumbricals preventing toe buckling. Now, so what? In old age, kinematic studies have shown that there's a decreased joint angle of the hip, knee and ankle with a decline in power of those plantar flexors and a slower walking speed. This is complicated by muscle-motor-central coordination changes in the sit-to-stand movements, which we know so well from observing any elderly person getting out of a chair. The preparation to make a step is different, and there are differences in muscle synergy during walking, and so these have been assessed. And propulsion is a plantar flexor function propelling the body centre of mass forward. In the stroke case, that effect is specifically impaired, although it's not as simple as this since the coordination reliance on the patient on a paretic over a non paretic leg function uh, will actually vary. So they're interesting areas to consider if one's looking at variations in gait. I think we'll end this podcast here. Uh, I, I think I may consider a neurologic summary of the lower limb for the next one, and we have a couple of lower limb quizzes yet to get through before we move on to the new area of the thorax. I'm going to move, I think, towards a subscriber website so that these podcasts may gradually disappear from the airways as we progress through the body. Uh, We've, of course, got the thorax, the abdomen, the pelvis and the back yet to do. I'm actively seeking a neuroanatomist or a retired neurosurgeon to assist with neuroanatomy and we'll also be doing a separate section on the eye and the orbit in one of our specialist anatomy modules. So... There's a lot to do, I think, before we even consider sections that have been recommended, such as anatomy for minimally invasive and robotic surgery, radiologic anatomy for, for approaches and the like. The possibilities of these complementary areas that combine clinical medicine and anatomy, it would seem, are very large. And I don't think they've been adequately covered in many anatomy series. Uh, there's not much in podcasting, but on videos so my aim, I think, is is to change that, um, if we can. I think anyone can feel free to contact our office on megando57 M-E-G-A-N-D-O at yahoo.com. Uh, that's one of our um, secretary's um, uh, personal emails. So that if you have suggestions, please feel free to contact me or look up our Anatopod or Anatopod underscore plus site on Facebook. It's now Meta, I think. I'm not using Twitter or Instagram. I simply don't have the time for that. Um, But if there is anyone who has an interest in doing the neuroanatomy sections, uh, then I would be very interested if someone contacts me uh, as we can get together and uh, uh, create a whole neuroanatomy section. Once again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.